Hello everyone and welcome to The Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack Dilo Bobolik, and my lovely, luscious, liquid oxygen wife... <laughs> where did that come from? Uh, desperation is where it came from. <laughs> okay, hi, I'm Emmeline Dilo Bobolik. Desperation is its own kind of madness. <laughs> Watch, in chronological order, every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture... And not only watch them, but rank them according to however we feel at the time. Now, the first segment of our podcast is us looking at the poster. And I have not seen the poster for this movie yet. Maybe we should say the title first. <laughs> the title? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Who cares? What is this movie called? If you've, if you've listened to the other episodes, you should know which one is. <coughs> this is. It's been a, a while since you recorded and I'm out of practice with the whole thing. Yes. So, this week we watched You Can't Take It With You from 1938. You can't take it with you, and you can't see the poster. And what I was getting at is is what seems like for years, mm -hmm. we've been stuck in this limbo of posters just being the actors' heads. And so, I haven't seen this poster yet. <laughs> and I am on my knees with begging with tears in my eyes and fear in my heart praying to any god that will listen that we will finally be delivered from this limbo of posters that are just actors heads may i please see the poster y you will i'm sorry god damn it <laughs> not all it is the most heads yes <laughs> it is the most heads we've ever had on a poster yeah just yellow background and then characters you can't take it with you written in a red and black in the center and that's about it the exact result i would expect from paying not only are you not delivered from your situation but your situation worsens to an incredible degree <laughs> yeah you will have to wait until next poster i think to be satisfied there is a light at the end of the tunnel, at least. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, I uh, promise. This is terrible. I don't even want to look at it. Get it away. <laughs> it's just heads. It's just a ring of it, heads. The yellow, it's not, it's a soft yellow, but it's, it's too harsh <laughs> in, a, in a way. Like, the color itself is what I would call soft yellow, but there's too much of it on this poster. It's, it's almost aggressive. Yeah. It's a very, like, yeah, children's storybook yellow yes wow. yeah i hadn't thought uh thought about it in those terms but yes which is kind of in keeping with the movie since it turns out to be a, a children's movie for adults i think so yeah i think so thematically consistent but doesn't mean i have to like it i think we'll, ha we'll have plenty of time to talk about it at the end of the of this recording yep yeah all right information characters and actors yep uh, we have a returning actor, Lionel Barrymore, who was Kringleine. Mr. Kringleine. Yeah. It's only been, well, five years since Grand Hotel? I believe so, yes. And despite that fact, he has aged at least 30 years. So much. Dramatically. He has aged so, so much. I barely recognized him at, uh, at first because, A, he was bigger in, in stature, I think, but his face has aged significantly. He, and there's a reason he, also. He shaved his mustache and crumbled into dust. <laughs> he was, uh, that was was part of the fun fact, but I guess I'll, I'll get it uh, right now, is that he um, 
had become uh, a little sick and well more than a little but he uh, was suffering from uh, arthritis and uh, that, that's one of the reasons that's the main reason he had to be on crutches for this entire movie because he uh, had uh, increasing pain and difficulty to walk on his own so I assume that's part of the the aging uh, also in him is just the difficulty in moving yeah you know you're famous when f movie studios are willing to make concessions like you're allowed to be on crutches for an entire movie yes but also they explained it in the movie as oh it was a sliding down the banister accident i only play characters whose <laughs> feet have been crushed <laughs> i honestly think he is a very very good actor for for this role in this movie yeah. I, there's not I couldn't think of anybody else that I would want to see play this character, so... He does a good, uh, warm, inviting grandpa. Yes. Yes, so Lionel Barrymore is uh, Grandpa Martin Vanderhoof. Vanderhoof. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have uh, Jean Arthur, who plays his granddaughter, Alice Sycamore. Spring Byington plays... Um, uh, grandpa's daughter Penelope Sycamore called Penny Penny yeah. yes um, Samuel S. Hines plays Paul Sycamore uh, that's Alice's father who has maybe five lines in the yeah, movie yeah we see him in, in uh, a few uh, in a few different scenes but he doesn't always have something to say he's more in the background spends the majority of the film in the basement making explosives <laughs> yes we have Ann Miller, who plays Essie Carmichael. She's Alice's sister. Yep, the ballerina. Yes. Uh, we have Dub Taylor, her who plays her husband, Ed Carmichael. Uh, Edward Arnold, who plays Anthony P. Kirby, the bigwig banker. Yep. Uh, then we have James Stewart, uh, who plays his son, Tony Kirby. Who... I have some some information about his like film uh, filmography. Uh, yeah, he was the main male lead in uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Yeah, which is how I recognize him because he has a very distinct way of talking. Yes, almost like jolly kind of way. Where uh, in Vertigo he has the line, "I go up and I go down," <laughs> and he also yeah. in A Wonderful Life he's the Clarence. I want to live again. Yes, yeah, he's that guy, and he talks that way in this movie too. Which, It's a Wonderful Life is also a, a Frank Capra a movie. Yep. Uh, we have Mary Forbes as Miriam Kirby. So, Anthony's... She had a name? She only gets called Mrs. Kirby. Yeah, but in, when I looked for characters and, and uh, actors, uh, her name is listed as Miriam Kirby. Miriam. We have Donald Meek, who plays Poppins, who is an accountant turned inventor. And the best way I could describe this man, what this man looks like, is imagine a mix between Uncle Albert from the original Mary Poppins and Professor Flitwick from Harry Potter. Or one of the goblins at Gringotts. Yes, <laughs> yes. One or the other. Uh, almost done. We have Misha Auer, who plays uh, Potap... What? Kalinkov. Oh, Kalinkov. Kalinkov, the yep. Russian 
dance teacher and overall leech, I would say, because he's always there for dinner. For and, free food. Yeah, free food. Yep. And Harry Davenport, who is also a returning actor, he plays the night court judge in this uh, movie, but he was one of the uh, corrupt um, general staff. Uh, he was the chief the of life, staff, I believe. The chief of staff, yeah, yep. in uh, the life of uh, Inuzula. Now, the information about the movie, so it was directed by Frank Capra, who also did It Happened One Night. Um, it was produced and distributed by Columbia Pictures. Uh, the was he not the one who did Cavalcade? Capra? No, that was Frank Lloyd. Okay, a different Frank. Different Frank, yeah. Um, the International Press preview was on August 23rd, 1938. Then there was a New York premiere on September 1st and a countrywide release on September 29th, 1938. The running time is 126 minutes and the budget at the time was a little over a million and a half, but it made over two million uh, domestically and over five million internationally so overall not bad yeah not bad you ready for some fun facts boy am i all right so ann miller who plays essie uh, alice's little sister she was only 15 at the time she does not look 15. she looks like she's in her mid-20s at least i thought for Sheesh. sure she was in her mid-20s but she was only 15 at the time of filming was she supposed to be that old in the movie they never say anything about ages well, she's married in the movie oh yeah jesus so i don't think she if she was supposed to be young she would have had at least been like 18 but we don't we don't know her exact age in the movie uh, there's a line from the movie that's been used in the Looney Tunes. Uh, it's the line from Colin Cuff when he says, Confidentially, she stinks. Uh, and that's been used apparently a couple of times in the Looney Tunes in the sounds 1940s. Like, yeah, it sounds like a Looney Tunes line. <laughs> did they just take the audio or did they just repeat it with their own actors? They just repeated it with their own actor, with uh, the voice actors from the Looney Tunes. Uh, Jean R. Arthur, for those of you who are not familiar with her, she was a big, big name in Hollywood. Uh, she was in 91 movies between uh, 1923 and 1953. Uh, she acted opposite some of the biggest uh, movie stars like uh, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, and Marlene Dietrich. Never Clark Gable. I didn't find anything uh, in any movies with uh, Gene Arthur and Clark Gable. I know that uh, James Stewart, who plays uh, Tony, played again uh, opposite of Clark Gable because uh, there was when I looked at his page on Wikipedia, there was a specific section for him that that said male actors who uh, that uh, he has played opposite with, and then female actors that he's played opposite with. Uh, James Stewart uh, was also a big name. He was in he was in seventy nine movies between nineteen thirty five and nineteen ninety one, so he had a, a pretty long career. Uh, some of the movies include Ziegfeld Girl in nineteen forty one, It's a Wonderful Life nineteen forty six, Rear Window nineteen fifty four, and you mentioned it Vertigo nineteen fifty eight. Yep. Um, this was not Gene Arthur's uh, first time working with Frank Capra. 
she starred in three of his movies. Uh, the first one was uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town in 1936, then You Can't Take It With You in 1938, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939, which also starred James Stewart um, as Mr. Smith. <laughs> so both of them have worked with Frank Capra uh, a bunch of times, and uh, James Stewart was in uh, It's a Wonderful Life later. So. Used to, they're used to uh, playing together and, and being directed by him. Speaking of Frank Capra's movies, after 1934, that's not something I mentioned uh, in our podcast for uh, It Happened One Night, but I felt like this was appropriate for this one. Um, his movies apparently took a turn in terms of content. He had apparently met with a friend who told him that God gave him his talents and that he should use his talents to serve God's purpose. Oh, boy. Um, and Capra himself explained, uh, and I quote, My films must let every man, woman, and child know that God loves them, that I love them, and that peace and salvation will become a reality only when they all learn to love each other. Oh, Frank. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Got on the Jesus juice, huh? Yeah. He, I, I also read about him that he, um, I guess either enlisted or um, was called to serve during the war, during uh, World War II. And uh, he did some movies, some, like, propaganda movies during uh, World War II. And after that, like, he really just wanted his movies to have stronger messages. And often those messages were, uh, were um, considered like fantasies of goodwill so like you know find your happiness movies he got a taste for propaganda and then yeah 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 i can i can see the the christianity connection this movie does have some of that like bury your head in the sand quality that mainstream religion <laughs> has just plug your ears and tell yourself everything will be okay yeah but it's also like a yeah i would qualify it as a feel good movie and do the right thing movie yeah to a absurd degree yes yes all right a couple more uh fun facts uh you can take it with you was very well received at the time with critics uh saying that i quote the comedy is wholly american wholesome homespun human appealing and touching in turn barfer rooney however in modern times, uh, critic James Berardinelli wrote that, I quote, the movie hasn't fared as well as the director's better, more timeless offerings due to the dated nature of screwball comedies and the innocent permeating, innocence permeating the movie that doesn't play as well during an era when audiences valued darkness in even the lightest of comedies. So it's like the first thing, it's a mix because when we first uh, watched it uh, right at the end, I was like, oh, the, I feel like I found my new number one. And then the more we talked about it, I was like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> so we'll, we'll make it to that. The shine came off very quickly. Yes. Yeah, it's a yes. very it's a very superficial 
feel good. So you pick at it even just a little bit and the whole thing crumbles. Yeah. He also said he that, that same critic wrote that uh, you can take it with you provides a pleasant enough two hour long um with a reminder of how era-specific the criteria for winning an Oscar are. So, yeah, it's, it's just... always how I would want my art to be described. Pleasant enough. <laughs> Pleasant enough. <laughs> yeah. It still has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, though. So... They love it. People still like it, I guess. And it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Spring Byington, Best Writing of a Screenplay... Best cinematography, best film editing, best sound recording. Best cinematography. That it's mostly just static shots. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing too special about it. Nothing really innovative. No, but... the majority of it is just them in their living room. Yeah, with the in the living room or in the uh, in the bank mostly. Yeah, it's always inside. There's very few scenes there may be like two or three scenes outside and that's it yeah grandpa wanders out into the street a couple times but yeah other than that it's their living room the bank office and the courthouse yeah uh and it won best director and best picture and that's it ready for the plot yes all righty here we go wall street outside the kirby and company building Kirby himself exits a car and makes his way to his office where his son, Tony, and attorneys are waiting. Kirby... He looks like a politician. He looks very stern. Yes, he very unsmiling, short, stout man. Just businessman. Business, yes. Yeah. Business and nothing else. We never see him anything other than a very, a very fancy suit this entire movie. He asks his son how his son likes being vice president now, and Tony replies that it's painless so far. Still talking like you're getting a tooth pulled, jokes Kirby, as his attorneys all ask how his trip to Washington went. We'll have no trouble from the powers that be anymore, says Kirby. We're going ahead exactly as we planned. We'll be the largest monopoly in the world if we're smart, particularly now that Ramsey is lined up. With the world going crazy, the next best, the next big thing is munitions, and Kirby and company will cash in on it. His attorneys express doubt that Ramsey will allow himself to be absorbed by anyone, but Kirby says he owns 12 blocks of property surrounding the Ramsey factory, so it's only a matter of time until Ramsey gives in. So essentially what he's trying to do is just buy as much, uh, as many properties as he can to drive uh, the competitor out and have the, yeah, have just the biggest monopoly in the, uh, in the city. He's bought up everything around yeah. uh, Ramsey's factory, so Ramsey's factory will, uh, in effect, be situated, situated in the middle of enemy territory, yeah. and he can just cut off his supplies and cause him so much of a hassle that he just gives up and sells to him exactly the attorneys leave uh kirby takes some medicine for his rotten stomach and then asks his son do you realize that there won't be a bullet gun or cannon made in this country without us and his son says uh, don't forget slingshots <laughs> he then gets on the phone with a uh, and I quote, sour-faced real estate agent, and is told that he owns everything of those 12 blocks he mentioned, except one little house that the old man who lives there refuses to sell. 
The place isn't worth $25,000, but the old man turned down an offer of $50,000. If you can't get it with money, there are other ways, snaps Kirby and hangs up. Mm. In the real estate agent's office, he asks a younger agent what happened when the old man was offered the money. I'm not sure, the younger agent says, but I think someone started singing, someone danced, and Grandpa Vanderhoff sat down and played a mouth organ. <laughs> Our first introduction uh, to, to the kookiness. A mouth organ. A that's mouth a, organ. That's a great way to call it. I tried to give him some money. He started playing a kazoo. I don't know what the hell happened. A secretary then pokes her head in and announces that Mr. Vanderhoff is here and is told to let him wait a bit. Let him stew and get anxious, says the sour-faced agent. The camera follows the secretary as she leaves the room, and we meet Grandpa Vanderhoff, who is uh, Kringleine uh, Barrymore. Yeah, Lionel Barrymore. Lionel Barrymore, who comes equipped with a pair of crutches and a small bag of popcorn. It's like a tiny little bag that like fits in the palm yeah. of his hand. There are men working on adding machines near where Grandpa waits, and he goes over and starts a conversation with one of the people working on the adding machines. Mr. Poppins! Mr. Poppins. Say, do you like this? He says. No, says Mr. Poppins. No, That my... was a very guttural, that was a very, like, instinct uh, response. It was like, no. No. <laughs> Goodness, no, he says. It's an immediate no, just, he took no time to think about it. Yep, knee-jerk reaction. Do you like what you're doing? Hell no. Well, then why do you do it? Isn't there something you'd rather be doing? Well, I, I make things. Poetry? No, just things. And then Mr. Poppins brings out one of those things from under his workstation because he takes them to work with him every <laughs> single day awaiting uh, just such a situation as this, apparently. And it is so cute. It is a six-inch tall egg that's open at the top with a white rabbit head that uh, comes out and bobs up and down and spins in a circle while a little tune plays. It's supposed to be flower petals around it. Are you sure? Yeah. I thought it was like an Easter theme. No, there there are multiple uh, uh, big petals that uh, arranged like as if it was like a a, uh, a rose or a tulip. Well, you know what they say: one man's flowers, another man's egg. Eh. Uh, Grandpa says that seems more like the work he ought to be doing, and asks uh, Mr. Poppins if he'd like to come and live at Grandpa's house and work on his gadgets. He'd love it there. Everyone gets to do what they want. But who takes care of you, says Mr. Poppins. Uh, here comes the Jesus juice. Mm. The same one that takes care of the lilies of the field, Mr. Poppins. Come on over and be a lily too. A woman in the office then notices the rabbit egg slash flower that's still sitting on Poppins' desk. And all the women crowd around, ooing and awing. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so cute. I love it. Uh, the sour-faced agent then comes out and barks at everyone to get back to work. He just comes up to the edge of the, the group of people and just goes, What's going on here? And then they, What's this? And then they all, just, they all just scramble back to their workstations. Nobody answers them. They all just run. They all get back to work except Grandpa, uh, who he invites back to his office to discuss uh, the sale of the house. Mm. Grandpa politely declines, saying he was just on his way out, which, why did he even come if, uh, whatever. 
and uh, points out that the agent has a pronounced eye twitch, which he does. And this guy also looks like he's a super heavy smoker because, like, all the skin on his skull is yeah. not attached anymore. Yes. He's definitely super skinny. He's somebody who must be in a lot of stress. Yep. And, yeah, he... The twitch is, like, it's so pronounced that it moves his head to the side, too, when he does yeah. it. It's very uh, cartoonish. He's been working too hard and should take a vacation, says Grandpa. The agent pulls out a check for $100,000, but Grandpa doesn't even look at it. He swings away with a reminder to be careful about that twitch, and halfway to the door calls over his shoulder, Coming, Poppins? Uh, that ca causes the sour face agent to turn his anger on Poppins, and he grabs the rabbit egg slash flower and tries to smash it. This is all your fault, Poppins! And he raises it over his head, but Poppins grabs it away before he can smash it on the ground and runs after Grandpa. He catches up with him as he boards the elevator going down and says the die is cast. He's a lily. And then Grandpa offers him some popcorn. Yep. And you'd think from this scene revolving around Mr. Poppins that Mr. Poppins was going to be a major factor in the plot. But... I thought so. I thought he was going to be uh, one of the like, protagonists in the story. But we we keep seeing him every once in a while. But he's definitely not a main character. No, he gets taken home and then shoved down into the basement with the rest of the side characters. He Yeah, he comes every once in a while and shows his invention. You'll get food and sunlight once a week, Mr. <laughs> Poppins. You'll probably get blown up, but... <clears throat> At least you'll be a lily. Yes. In the kitchen of Grandpa's house, the maid, Reba, wonders how many people Grandpa will bring home for dinner today. And one of the granddaughters, Essie, replies that it depends on if he walked through the park or not. Essie then spins her way over to her mother, Penny, because Essie, everyone in this family has a quirk. Yes. And Essie's quirk is that she's a ballerina. and That and, was going to be your alternate title for the movie. Yes. Quirk with a capital Q. Yes. Is the alternate title, title for this movie. So Essie's quirk is dancing and she never just walks anywhere. She always like pirouettes and spins and, and leaps everywhere she goes. She always has uh, ballet uh, shoes on. Yep. Essie then spins her way over to her mother, Penny, who is sitting at a typewriter creating a play and gives her a piece of candy, uh, Essie's love dreams. Mm -hmm. Penny says it's good enough for Essie to open a store, but Essie isn't interested. She wants to be a dancer. Essie's father, Paul, then comes up from the basement to show off uh, the new firecracker he created to Penny. He puts it down on the table, lights it, and says it'll sell like hotcakes after it explodes. That's his quirk. He makes makes explosives. Yes, all the time. Fireworks, explosives, anything that they can light up and that will crack. Yep, and Penny's quirk is that she writes plays. His assistant, I guess, mm -hmm. Dapina, then also comes up with a crow on his shoulder and says they should ask Grandpa about how to improve it. Because it's not loud enough, I think. Yes. Back in the kitchen, Reba's fiancé, Donald, arrives just in time to help set the table. As he does so, he becomes the first person Penny asks if they've ever lived in a monastery. Because She's writing a play about being about living in a monastery, but knows nothing about living in a monastery. <laughs> yep, so it becomes a recurring gag for her to ask everyone if, if they've ever lived in a monastery. Then Essie's husband, Ed, comes home and wastes no time introducing the audience to his quirk, making tunes on the xylophone. And he was out because his only form of employment is 
uh, going around and selling the candy that Essie makes. Yes. Uh, as he plays and Essie dances, Grandpa returns with Poppins in tow, and as Poppins takes in all the craziness of his new surrounding, an explosion from the basement knocks a home sweet home sign off its place at the top of a pillar near the front door. First time, but not the last. Nope. Uh, almost. This is basically an introductory scene to all the recurring gags in the movie. Yeah. The explosions, the sign falling. Uh, all their quirks. Essie's dancing. Yep. Here, here's all the jokes we have that you'll be seeing for the next two hours. Get used to it. Uh, and Poppins tries to run for the door when the sign falls. I didn't notice that until the rewatch, but as soon as the sign falls, he regrets his decision and tries to scram. Yeah. Uh, but he's caught up in introductions before introductions before he can escape uh, and becomes the second person asked if he ever lived in a monastery. When introduced to Depeña, he says he'll only be staying for a short while, and Depeña says... That's the same thing he said nine years ago when he came to the house to deliver ice. <laughs> this this household just gobbles up strangers. Yep. Poppins then shows off his rabbit egg and is pulled down into the basement by Paul and Pina so he can show them his other ideas and, and vanishes mostly from the plot. Before that, like before he gets introduced to other people, there's a maybe one or two minutes um, where you see everybody in the room doing their thing and he's kind of in the center of the room and being confused about what to do where to go what to say and i thought that uh, that scene was really well made because you move from one person to another seeing what they're doing what their quirk is and it's very good at making you not uncomfortable that you would want to turn off the movie but just Giving you just a little bit of discomfort uh, the same way uh, that Poppins is probably uncomfortable in that, in that scene or in that house. Just not really knowing what his place is and what he's supposed to be doing there. Yeah, it simulates the awkwardness of uh, encountering a, a social group that already knows all their own places. And yes. trying to figure out how to insert yourself into this well-oiled machine yeah and i've definitely i've felt that before being an introvert I, i've definitely uh been in situations like this where you have people who are already friends and have their friend group and their conversations and there there are things in common and not knowing how to insert yourself in, in that group yep uh, a fish out of water Grandpa settles into a chair and tells Penny she ought to write about ism-mania. Ism-mania, says Penny. Yes, communism, fascism, voodooism. Everybody's got an ism these days. When things go bad, you go out and get yourself an ism and you're in business. I have bad news for you, Grandpa. It did not get any better in the ensuing 90 years. Yes, there are many more isms nowadays. Yep hit the nail on the head and it's been true ever since as grandpa continues to shake his fist at the clouds <laughs> reba sits down <laughs> and places a phone call to miss alice sycamore please cut to miss alice sycamore who is holding hands with and looking lovingly into the eyes of tony kirby dun 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 romeo and juliet situation he's very handsome and like He's not Clark Gable handsome, but he's definitely handsome. 
If only he didn't have that. <laughs> if only he knew how to use his lips when he talked. Because <laughs> I thought about it for a while, and I think that's what it is, is that the way you uh, uh, mimic the way he talks is that you just, you don't move your lips at all, and you just try and talk around them. You just let them hang. That makes sense. The phone on Alice's desk starts to ring, and she says that if she were really clever, she could pick it up without her hands, mm -hmm. because she's holding hands with Tony and does not want to let go. Tony says he saw it in a circus once, and then Alice bends over and uses her teeth to pull the phone from the cradle. <laughs> um. She lit, she, and then she sets it down on the desk, and she just bends over so her ear is next to the receiver as it's lying on the yeah. table. She listens for a second... And then she asked Tony if he's ever been in a monastery. He hasn't, but he was in a cave that collapsed once, and he hasn't been heard from since. And this is where we get introduced to the fact that Tony is also quirky. Yes, and which was a, a pleasant surprise, because in the first scene, uh, when we see him with his father and other like bankers and lawyers, um, you kind of expect him to be uh, to have the same attitude as them but also in that scene you see him sitting down and uh, on a chair and just kind of waiting for the conversation to be over so he fits and doesn't fit in, in that environment at the same time i think you get hints of it by kirby senior saying that him complaining about being vice president and yeah. his little joke about the manufacturing slingshots this is where where it really comes to the fore we then see Tony's mother, decked out in pearls and fur coat, strutting down the hallway towards Tony's office, and entering just in time to see Tony bending over Alice and kissing her on the neck. And since she's laying on the desk to listen to the phone call, it, it looks a lot more uh, erotic and, and mm -hmm. salacious than it really is. And his mother is most displeased. Yep. She's real, uh, a legitimate pearl clutcher. Tony jumps up immediately, but it's too late, and his mother stares at them in shock and disgust before telling them she thinks she should go see his father and slowly backs out of the room. <laughs> Alice hangs up the phone and asks Tony to hand her the help-wanted section of the paper <laughs> because she thinks she's out of a job now. Yeah. Then we see Mrs. and Mr. Kirby in his office uh, talking about how to handle this secretary situation because Alice is Tony's secretary. Kirby says he'll fire her, but his wife says that this isn't a business deal and can't be fixed that way. Fine, I won't fire her, he says. Back in Tony's office, the younger Kirby and his secretary are planning their date for tonight, and they need to decide where to eat before they leave because Tony once knew a couple that left the building without knowing where they were going to eat, and they wandered around until they died. And Tony says it in his jowly way, until they died. When Tony, uh, then Tony maneuvers Alice onto a couch, gives her a flower, and arranges her pose just so. He takes a few seconds. He was like, no, the flower should go here. No, lift your shoulder a bit. No, your arm will over a little more. You're so beautiful, Alice. He tells her that he spoke to his mother about her last night, and he did it so long that his mother mentioned that it sounded like they were getting married, and that sounded like a wonderful idea to him. What about your parents? inquires Alice. They're putty in my hands, replies Tony. 
I never wanted anything that I couldn't get if I just yelled loud enough. Let me show you. And then he screeches like a dying wildebeest. <laughs> yes, that was surprising and it kind of startled me on the moment. Very reminiscent of the war whoop from Cimarron. Cal- Cimarron, Cimarron. Yes. Uh, But he screams twice here. The first time, it's just Alice and then... Uh, an assistant comes in to see yeah. what the hell's going on, and he turns toward the assistant and just <laughs> screeches at him, and the assistant just closes the door and backs out of the room. Like, mm, nope, don't don't want any of this. No, thank you. Alice loves it, though, and they hug, and next scene. <laughs> Outside the family home, uh, Grandpa hands out candy to a group of children, while across the street, the sour-faced agent points him out to two tough-looking goons and tells them that he doesn't care how they do it, just make him sell that property. A group of people that live in the neighborhood then come up to Grandpa, concerned about possible eviction due to all the property around them being bought up. But Grandpa tells them not to worry, nothing will happen, as long as they don't get his house, and it's not for sale. Now stop cluttering the street before we all get arrested. Yeah. Before we move on, I want to go back to that scene with uh, Tony and Alice and, uh, at the bank, because it looked very realistic to me it looked there was a really good portrayal of sweet young love young love yeah you see already two people who are going through the motions of still falling in love and and finding out stuff about each other and just being curious and in the moment and devoted to each other and i thought it was a really really good portrayal of that yeah it's very puppy love yeah. playful puppy love with the holding hands and the joking and the posing her on the couch and yeah. taking the phone off with your teeth mm. whereas you know a marriage 30 years down the line if somebody tried to take the phone off their teeth like you're gonna get sick we can't <laughs> afford to go to the hospital again what the hell are you doing <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I this movie excels in the the one-on-one character interactions. It's just the larger overall plot where it, it I feel it stumbles, but these little intimate moments it does really well. Even to me, I was going to say that maybe later, but the casting was really well done, I think. A lot of the characters, like Alice to me, or Jane Arthur, uh, looks very similar to um, to Spring Byington, who plays her mother. Uh, the family has been really well cast in the sense that they actually do look like they could be family. I agree. I agree, and that's it. <laughs> Down in the basement, Paul, Poppins, Depina, Donald, and Ed are all working on various projects, and Paul says that they need a new idea for this year's fireworks display. Poppins suggests the Russian Revolution, and Paul thinks that's a great idea. Uh, this this Down's basement area is... They call it the cellar. The cellar. It's like a combination laboratory and workshop yeah because down in the scene uh, mr poppins is carving like little wooden dolls yep and 
Paul is loading like gunpowder into firecrackers from these large barrels just full of gunpowder and Donald is working on packing as well and the the crow is even helping because yep. it's picking up things and like flying them from one bench to another depending on who needs what. It's one of those like basements uh, where you also have windows, you know, yeah. up close to the ceiling that give on the streets so or there's light coming in. And it seems to be there. Yeah, there's some sort of opening because they test fireworks by shooting them up out of the basement, and they go yes. they go by a window of on um, the upstairs. Yeah, that happens when Poppins being introduced to the family. I believe a firecracker yeah, yeah. just shoots by the window. Upstairs, Essie tells Grandpa that he's gotten two letters from the government over the last few weeks, but seems to have misplaced them. Back in the basement, Poppins suggests that Ed use his printing skills to make flyers for the fireworks show and put them in the candy boxes he sells. Make them say, watch for the revolution, it's coming soon, in big type. Mm. And everyone thinks this is a great idea. Alice comes home upstairs and dutifully puts the home sweet home sign back up because it's fallen off from all the uh, fireworks going off again. Uh, rearranges some forks on the dining table and then starts ringing a large handbell and yelling that the town crier has an announcement. Everyone except Grandpa gathers in the living room and Alice tells them that she's going on a date with a special man who will be coming to pick her up. And could everyone please, for the love of God, just knock off their bullshit for the five minutes that he's there? <laughs> yeah. Just be normal people for once. Please. No quirks. Please, Alice says. Because Alice herself is the most normal out of, yes. out of this kooky cast. I don't think... She doesn't really have any specific quirk. No. The only thing that we see her, her do when she does it once is just going down uh, the banister she, on her belly. She slides down the banister and she's also the one who dared Grandpa to do it which is why his foot is broken which yes. is why he's on crutches. <laughs> so her quirk is injuring the elderly. <laughs> her favorite pastime. As she runs upstairs to get ready she reveals the special man is Tony Kirby and her mother smiles and says that they can have the wedding right there in the house. Upstairs, Grandpa asks Alice why a date is such a big deal, and she replies that it isn't, but a proposal is. He's doing the thing that, that old people do sometimes where they pretend like they don't understand. Mm -hmm. well, I, well, what's the big deal about going on a date? Yeah. And then he uh, where asks her about Tony and asks her to describe him. They're using selective ignorance just as a way to propel conversations forward. Yeah. I don't get it. Explain this to me. You like other people? Huh? Which, again, seemed very sweet and very true to life. Yep. He sits down beside her and rem reminisces about proposing to her grandmother. And she says she wishes she could have met her and asks what she was like. He points to a mirror behind them and says, look in there. All these years later, the house still carries her scent and the sound of her laughter, he says. And that's why he won't move out, because it would feel like he was leaving her. He gets up so she can resume getting ready for her date, and she gives him a present before he goes. A new harmonica. This is another one of those really good, intimate character moments. Yes. With him yeah. talking about his deceased wife and... He talks about his own proposal to her where uh, she made him so nervous that he could never manage to do it and eventually got to the point where 
it caused him to have a fever. Yeah. And then she finally extracted it out of him as he was laying in bed with a temperature of 104. And as soon as he confessed, the fever went away. Mm. And it was uh, reported upon in all the top medical journals of the time. <laughs> that was really sweet. Do you remember what she says also, what Alice says uh, about the present? She says, uh, it's a, your birthday present. And then he asks, well, how do you know when my birthday is? It's not my birthday anyway. And and she says that anytime she finds uh, a present that looks fitting uh, for him, it's his pre- it's his birthday. Yep. Which also just very, just yeah, really sweet family overall. Yep. We transition back downstairs to see Essie dancing around the table, while Grandpa plays on his new harmonica with the sheet music wedged into the cast on his foot. He, like, has it glued to his foot, so he's, he's just looking at his foot and playing his harmonica. Yeah. The doorbell rings, and everyone gets in place for Tony's interest. Places, places, everyone. Except it's not Tony, but an agent of the Internal Revenue Office come to talk to Grandpa. Before he can get into it, though, the doorbell rings again, and Tony enters and is swarmed by everyone and asks about his position and his salary and his marriage prospects. They just... <laughs> come down on him like a ton of bricks like what's your job how much money do you make you gonna marry our daughter what are you doing yeah and you're gonna have children you're gonna be part of our family how many children boy weirdly enough nobody asked him if he has any quirks yep they paul tries to be like back off a little bit but they don't care <laughs> yeah don't don't drive him away too late The IRS agent recovers from the interruption and asks Grandpa why he hasn't paid income tax in 22 years. Don't believe in it, says Grandpa. And the camera cuts to to Tony, who laughs at that. (laughs) The agent is incensed and asks how they'll pay for battleships. Haven't needed any since the Spanish-American War. Or interstate commerce. Why does that cost money? Are there fences? And then he, he and Grandpa asks, what is interstate commerce anyway? Yeah. And that's when we get the line of, why does that cost money? Are there fences? Grandpa is once again uh, utilizing his willful ignorance and pretending like he doesn't understand what taxes are and just asking very innocent, innocuous questions to drive this man insane. Yes. Grandpa finally concedes that he's willing to pay $75, but it isn't worth any more than that. The agent tries to keep arguing, but is driven out by a combination of loud xylophone music and fireworks, with the home sweet home sign falling and smacking him on the head as he flees. Yeah, and Grandpa also tells, tries to explain to the IRS agent that, you know, if you give money, if you go to a store and you give uh, money to buy something, then you're going to get something and see what it is. You get to uh, see a, a tangible outcome to what you're paying for. And he was like, if I give you money for the government, what do I get in return? And I thought this was, a, it, it was really comical. And I thought this was uh, just very true to what people think about uh, paying taxes uh, nowadays, too. It's like, you don't know exactly where your money is going. Like, it always makes me laugh on when there is construction on the highway and it says your tax dollars at work <laughs> like no this is not what i would uh, this is not what i would have wanted my uh, money to pay yeah, for meaning all the potholes and cracks yeah the the highlighting of just how quickly 
the logic of taxes and government falls apart under even the barest scrutiny. Yes. Is pretty funny, and the, the IRS agent being flummoxed by this this old just the idea that an adult pretending to not know what taxes are and how they work, <laughs> like, well, what's the government gonna do with the money? Yeah, and like, well, it doesn't sound like they really need any of those things, and his innocent questions just causing this man to lose his mind. Yeah. and the IRS agent gets really aggressive. He's like yelling and like pounding the table and like. You have to pay this. He's getting up and starting like pace around the room and yeah, very very invested in his bullshit. Yep. Alice and Tony then leave on their date, and as they exit, the final member of the family makes his interest, uh, interest makes his entrance, the brooding Russian, Kalinkov who is Essie's dance instructor. He tells Alice the ballet she's going to stinks and then strides over to Reba and gives her his laundry, uh, introducing us immediately to both of his quirks, which are A, saying everything stinks, yep. and uh, B, leeching off his family for laundry and food. Exactly. He's not a, a ballet master to me. He's a, a a leech master, leeching master. Yeah, he seems to have a little bit of knowledge about ballet, but yeah. is mostly just there for the free food. Yep. A very tall, brooding. He has a, a comically big frown on his face the entire movie. He's very tall and broad-shouldered and imposing looking, and anytime you ask his opinion on anything, he says, it stinks. Mm. And uh, that's about as much character development as he ever gets. Because <laughs> the majority of characters in this movie are just their quirk and nothing else. On their way to the ballet, Tony expresses his admiration for Alice's family, and Alice tells him Grandpa's origin story. Years ago, he was also a standard businessman, until one day as he rode the elevator up to his office, he realized he wasn't having any fun at all. So he rode the elevator right back down and never looked back. They then arrive at their destination, which turns out to be a park instead of the ballet. They sit together on a bench, and Tony says her family really threw him for a loop. It takes real courage to live the way that they do, especially in these times when everyone seems to be ruled by fear. Alice agrees, and tells him that one of Grandpa's pet aversions is people who commercialize on fear scare you to death to sell you something. Uh, once again, has not gotten any better in the ensuing 90 years. Mm. So he taught them all to not be afraid. Tony then realizes his... Uh, or, excuse me. Tony then reveals his own origin story. In college, he and his roommate wanted to figure out what made the grass green because it's the product of millions of little engines inside the grass. And if they could figure out the little engines, they could make big engines and power everything just from the rays of the sun. They'd stay up all night working on it and be walking on air after the slightest discovery. But then they left school, and his roommate started selling cars, and he got involved in some strange thing called banking. Uh, then he and Alice smooch for a bit, uh, but before things can get to the point where we need to tastefully fade to black... A roving gang of street children approach and ask if they want to learn to do the Big Apple. Yeah, this looks like you. Know, it almost looked like they were in some little like nook in uh, Central Park. 
Maybe. Are they in New York? Yeah, they I must be. I believe so, yeah, because Wall Street. Wall Street. Yeah. And this, this brought Cavalcade to mind a little bit with this random gang of children approaching them. Yeah. And it's part of the fun of these old movies, just because just at any moment, any random thing can happen. Yep. Also, it's... N- like nighttime, yep. and those kids are not older than probably twelve years old. If that, if that, nine, so. nine, ten, yeah, just r- roaming nocturnal street urchins. Yep. come up and say, "Hey, buddy, you want to learn to do the Big Apple?" <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very reminiscent of Cavalcade and, and just the the random non sequiturs. I almost expected them to ask if they wanted to attend the Queen's funeral. Mm. They do want to learn the Big Apple, uh, and at some point, they have, one of them has an accordion. Yeah. Also, and they've got a sign, like a cardboard sign that says, learn the Big Apple. Ten cents. Ten cents, and on the other side of it says nuts. Yeah. And then at some point, Tony clips their learn the Big Apple sign on the back of Alice's dress. They take turns learning the Big Apple. First, Tony dances with the one uh, girl in the group, and then Alice comes up and dances with one of the boys who cannot take his eyes off her cleavage. Yes. I, I even made the comment when we were uh, watching the movie. I was like, she has eyes and a face. Just take your eyes off her boots. Eyes up here. Like, hey, this is pre-internet times. You gotta, <laughs> You got to take what you can get. Then one of the kids sees a patrolman walking up and says, It's the fuzz! Cheese it! And everyone cheeses it. Because somebody makes a reference, I think it's Tony or maybe... It's either Tony or Alice who says, I guess music or dancing in public in the park is illegal? When the kids first come up, Tony and he says, Hey, you want to learn the Big Apple? Tony's first response is, Isn't this illegal? And the kid goes, Yeah, but show is making out in the park, you creep. <laughs> And then they go along with it. I, Yeah, 1930s laws. You got a permit for that fun? Get out of here. Alice and Tony are next seen arriving at a swanky upscale restaurant. And there is no indication of this, but something about this place makes me feel that it's not the first floor that they're on. Did you get that feeling at all? This, for some reason, maybe it's the size of the room, because it's not very big. It just made me feel like it's on the upper floor of a tall building. Oh, I did not get that feeling when we were watching it, but I, I can understand it, yeah. This, there, I cannot put my finger on it, but there's something about this place that makes me feel like you got to take an elevator to get there. It doesn't look like a restaurant either. It, there's no windows. It, it almost looks like a... A big, like, conference room from a hotel. Yeah. But restaurant. Yeah. Tony's mother and father are also there, dining with the esteemed Lord Melville. And Tony brings Alice over to their table because he wants her to meet a, and I quote, real four-star blue blood. Mm. Alice Alice is reluctant to go because of her, uh, their relative social stations. Yes. And... She also still has the sign attached to her dress at this point, mm-hmm. which Tony's the one who put it there, so he should remember, but he doesn't. And the people in the restaurant see it and giggle as they move through the crowd. 
At the table, Lord Melville is talking about his family tree and asks Alice if she has one. Tony comes to the rescue and says, her last name is Sycamore, and that is a tree. The introduction is court cut short, though, because Tony notices that the sign is still on Alice's dress and drags Alice away with him from the table backwards, bowing repeatedly and knocking over multiple food trays in the process. They're bunking into people, into the waiters. Yep. And... This thing that they used to do at restaurants where they would come with the, the food and, and set it down on a like little stand next to the table as they distributed everything. Yeah. And he, they're just knocking over at least two or three as they move backwards without looking where they're going because they can't turn around, not apologizing to anyone, just cutting a path of destruction through this restaurant. And being awkward as hell. Yes, it's super awkward and you can tell that his mother and father stare in disapproval as they move away. Lord Melville uh, thinks it's hilarious though. His mother is staring in disapproval way more than his father. She has the, this distinctive look uh, on her face that's just... Always disapproving of everything. I mean, she's a sourpuss throughout the entire thing. Once they're sitting at their own table, which is the only empty table in the whole place, this place is packed. Alice tells Tony that she can tell his parents don't like her and thinks the solution is to have them over to meet her family. They don't like me, so let's introduce them to the, the people who are uh, three times as quirky as me. That'll fix it. Let's show them all the uh, explosives we have in the basement. Surely this will bring them around. Tony doesn't think they need to prove anything, but Alice insists, and Tony eventually deflects by telling Alice that he feels so lucky to have her that he could scream, and in fact feels one coming on right now, and he does this whole production of, oh, I, I feel it in my toes, and, uh, and it's, it's coming up. It's, it's shaking my legs and moving up to my knees, and Oh, now it's in my stomach. It's it's coming. Oh, it's rising higher. <laughs> and this whole time Alice is going, no, don't, don't do it. Don't stop. Knock it off. And then it gets up to his throat and you go, oh, it's in my throat. I, I can't stop it. Here it comes. And, and uh, then he covers his mouth. He covers his mouth and Alice screams because yeah. she doesn't want to do it. No. And then every... Everyone in the entire restaurant uh, just turns to look at her. and <laughs> She's incredibly embarrassed. After Alice screams, the waiter rushes over, and Tony claims it was because she saw a rat. A huge one! A whole pack of them, in fact. There they go! And he points. The restaurant explodes into a chorus of screams, and in the chaos, Tony and Alice flee. Sign still attached to the back of her dress, and it's turned around at this point. And so it says nuts. says nuts as they leave. And Which was perfect, because that's probably what everybody in the restaurant thought about her. Yep. And back to uh, Tony's mother being a sourpuss. As When they were sitting at the table, as soon as Alice says, uh, I can tell that she didn't like me, the camera cuts to his mother, and she's staring at them yes. through a pair of those like opera glasses, you know, like glasses that have a handle. <laughs> she's just... She's such a creep. Looking through her snooty rich people glasses at the at the undesirables with a, a sour look on her face. This was another scene that I thought um, was really well uh, constructed and well, really well acted as well. Like I understood Alice's discomfort and her being uh, ill at ease in that environment. 
and just the yeah when he covers his mouth and she ends up screaming I'm like I was so uncomfortable in that moment and I just like shrank to myself in the couch and I imagine that's how um Alice must have wanted to do just to, she must have wanted to shrink under the table and was not able to got secondhand embarrassment yeah yeah I wonder if Tony really would have gone through with it or if he was goofing the whole time the fact that he covered his mouth to me tells me that he was just looking for the reaction in her. He, I don't I think he was going to do it. I think he covered it after she screamed, though. I think he got to his throat, she screams, and then he covers his mouth. Like, oh, <laughs> shit, I wasn't actually going to... And then comes up with the, the quick cover story of the rats and saves the day. Next scene is Mr. and Mrs. Kirby getting ready to meet Alice's family. Mr. Kirby asks if his wife is really going through with this slumming tour. Mm-hmm. And she responds that the more they fight it, the more Tony will dig in. So the best thing to do is play along until he realizes that it will never work. They live in two different worlds, come from two different social circles. They're just too far apart in social standing. Back in Grandpa's house, Ed peeks out the front window because a man was following him while he was out selling candy that day. Alice then slides down the banister and lays out the plan for the Kirby's visit tomorrow. She tells everyone to, you know, once again, to knock off their bullshit. They're going to put away all the, the weird stuff that they have in the living room. They're going to roll out the carpet to make space. She's planning uh, what they're going to eat and telling everyone to be on their best behavior. For tomorrow. For tomorrow. Which, at this point, I think I turned to you and I was like, hold on. Are they on their way now? You know, for some reason, not being a native speaker of English, sometimes I I kind of second-guess myself. And I'm like, am I understanding the situation? Or did she say tomorrow? And, yeah, she said tomorrow and they're on their way now. Yeah, well, this happens right after the scene of them getting ready to come over. Yeah. So. De Pena comes up from the basement to show Penny what he just found down there. Her unfinished painting of him as a discus thrower. <laughs> they should finish it. Right now. De Pena goes to change into costume. Kolenkov then arrives. In time for dinner, I hope, he says. And offers his opinion of the painting. It stinks. <laughs> De Pena comes back dressed as a discus thrower and poses on top of a crate of explosives while Penny sets up her easel, and Essie comes down in ballerina outfit for her lessons. Ed plays the xylophone while Essie dances, Penny paints, Donald sets the table with the help of the crow, and Grandpa throws darts. These are big-ass darts. They, They're like, huge. take up his entire hand to chuck them. And he has them, like, stuck into the bottom uh, pole of the stairs. Yeah. Just as the madness gets in full swing, the doorbell rings, and Reba answers it, coming face to face with the Kirbys. Shock, surprise, horror. <laughs> all uh, all at once on her face. Yep. She opens the door, and immediately she gets an oh shit face. And then runs over to Penny, and Penny goes, not now, I'm busy. But then they all see that the Kirbys are there, and the family scrambles to make themselves presentable. And Penny explains that they weren't expecting them until tomorrow. Yeah, they come in on this scene of 
a man standing on top of a, a crate of explosives being painted as a discus thrower and a giant Russian waving his arms around to keep time with the xylophone music. Essie dancing. Essie in full ballerina outfit dancing. It's a madhouse. A crow helping set a table. The rug is rolled up. This is this is not proper. No. None of it. Chairs are pulled up for the Kirby's and awkward introductions are made. Donald is sent to the store for more food and runs full speed through the living room in an attempt to be inconspicuous. Alice comes downstairs and is horrified. She slides down the banister and goes, ah, I did it with no hands. Ah, shit. <laughs> Asks if Mr. Kirby's indigestion is being taken into account for dinner. And Kalinkov chimes in and says, it, it's not indigestion. He's probably just dying of an ulcer. Yeah, she was asking because they were going to have bratwurst and sauerkraut. Yep. And Kalinkov is very insistent about this. They, <laughs> they like, try and steer the conversation away from it. And he's like, no, no, he's dying. He must be dying. It's ulcers. I had a friend who died from ulcers. And he just, he won't let it go. And it just makes it more and more awkward. Mr. Kirby asked to smoke a cigar and is offered their homemade lighter. It's like this giant, it takes two hands to lift. It's like a metal pole. And it makes an awful noise, too. It sounds like it's something is about to explode. Yeah, an awful, you press a button and it like, one part of the metal levers away from the main post and an arc of electricity goes in between the two pieces yeah. of metal. Yeah. Poppins comes up in a homemade walrus mask and scares the shit out of Mrs. Kirby. It's a really <laughs> god it's a hellish looking walrus mask, like really realistic, but it's huge too. It's not just it's not just like a, a mask that covers like the your your face, but it's it goes all over his head and yeah, his it's a, shoulders. It's, it's a hood. Yeah. A walrus hood and a he just comes hood. up out of the darkness and uh, <laughs> half man, half walrus. He's coming from the cellar, so for all you know, he could be a robber uh, invading the house and just yep. trying to scare them. Miss Kirby screams ah, and clutches her pearls. Uh, Grandpa talks about playing the harmonica, and Tony says that his dad won first prize at amateur night years ago when he was young. Grandpa bets they could play a mean duet, but Kirby is too busy for such nonsense. Donald returns with the groceries, running full speed again back to the kitchen through the group. He got weenies and pickled pig's feet. Forgot the mustard, he yells and runs full speed back out. <laughs> This this whole visit is just a, a never-ending series of awkward events. And, it's just a shit show and all around. clumsiness and people running and banging and multiple attempts to try to steer things back to mutual conversation. And just every attempt they make just falls flat and it's super awkward and uncomfortable yeah. the whole time. In the kitchen, Tony reveals he came a day early on purpose to give his parents the genuine experience. Alice is furious, as she should be. This was a, a stupid, shitty thing yes. for Tony to do. He said that he wanted uh, his parents to meet her family as they are, not like a not a polished version of of who they are. But yeah, this was just a recipe for disaster. It just results in awkwardness because they don't have... Their plans for dinner are now screwed up and... Yeah. They're in the wrong clothes and all their activities were interrupted and everyone's just caught flat-footed and off balance. And, and Kalenkov is here. Yeah. Just... The crow is on the table. It's a mess. Penny asks if Mrs. Kirby has any hobbies 
and Mrs. Curry replies that she is a student of occultism. Spiritualism. Everyone knows that shit is fake, says Penny. <laughs> Paul reprimands her, saying that Penny has her own hobbies, and Penny replies, yeah, but not any that are for big, dumb, stupid idiots. <laughs> she doesn't, she says, not silly ones. But <laughs> she just immediately shits on it and goes, oh, everyone knows that's not real. Come on. <laughs> and after that response, uh, Mr. Kirby smiles. It's the only smile we get out of him the entire evening when his wife's uh, dumb hobby is shit on. Yeah. He likes it. Kalinkov steps in and says that wrestling is the best hobby. And to prove it, he picks up Mr. Kirby onto his shoulders, spins him around, and slams him into the ground, breaking his glasses. This was just... I did not like this scene. Yeah, Kirby says that he used to wrestle, but like years ago when he was young, and that he hasn't done it in years, and Kalinkov was trying to tell him that no well, this is the best thing like yeah, it could cure you you know it could be good for your for your ulcer and and you need to to, to do it again and so he picks him up and yeah slams him into spins the ground spins him around slams him into the ground this this whole scene goes on way too long and they did an excellent job of making it realistically awkward but yeah. having to sit through a protracted realistically awkward scene is incredibly uncomfortable it is you can the kirby's aren't comfortable the vanderhoffs aren't comfortable their attempts at small talk are stilted and awkward and everyone kalinkov is the worst but um, everyone's iq like drops to single digits as soon as the kirby arrives because they all start doing the stupidest thing possible, like Poppins coming yeah. up in the walrus mask, Kalinkov uh, insisting that Kirby's dying of an ulcer, and then picking him up and slamming him into the ground. Donald running full speed through the living room three times. I I almost... The giant awkward lighter. Yeah. The shitting on Mrs. Kirby's hobbies. Like, everyone just turns into an idiot as soon as they arrive for the sake of making it awkward. After Kalenkov mentioned his friend with an ulcer the first time, I expected Grandpa to ask him to leave because he gets up in that moment. And I thought that maybe he was going to ask him to, uh, you know, tell him, oh, this is not the right time, this is not the right moment, just could you please, you know, just come back tomorrow. I really wanted that to be another sort of awkward moment but necessary to ask him to leave and that didn't happen mm. i thought it would have made it could have made things better no we just but. get into this pattern of awkward thing happening grandpa apologizing the kirby's awkwardly going oh it's all right it's okay don't don't worry about it and then stilted attempts to get things back on track with small talk and then the next awkward thing happens and it's just this constant waffling of awkward trying to make it better oh don't worry about it don't worry about it and then it just it never oh it's so uncomfortable kirby also seems a little trapped in his chair like there's a something that happens three times in that scene where he goes to sit down and it's a padded chair that it almost looks like a rocking chair so as soon as he sits down the back of it kind of slams into his back and he sinks into the chair and it happens three times in the, in the scene and I, it feels like he's trapped 
he's uncomfortable sitting in it and he's trapped in the chair itself so he's yeah he's uncomfortable both mentally and physically yeah the camera cuts him every time he sits down in the chair and i think the gag was that it's a rocking chair and every time he sat yeah. down into it it smacked him in the back of the yeah, head yeah yeah yep uncomfortable in every way you can be uncomfortable after Kalinkov slams him into the ground, that's the final straw, and Alice apologizes and said it would probably be best if the Kirbys left, including Tony. The elder Kirbys heartily agree, awkward goodbyes are said, and they move towards the door, only to be pushed back inside by the men who are following Ed all day. <laughs> you thought this uh, awful situation was over? No, we're only beginning. And I turned to you and I, I said... This is where this movie takes a turn. Yeah, this is where we go fully off the rails. Yes. They're policemen who have been who have pegged Ed as a radical because of the flyers he's been printing and handing out with the candy that talk about the coming revolution. A few of the police head down to the basement and find enough gunpowder to blow up the town, which is enough to have everyone in the house placed under arrest. Paul is brought up from the basement. However, he left his lit pipe in the basement, and it ignites all the powder down there, and the entire house explodes. And it... I expected more damage than that, but it just seems to go all through the windows of the of the basement and just shoots into the street. Oh yeah, if this, if this actually happened, there'd be nothing left but cinders. Yes. But when we come back later, the house is... There's some interior damage in the basement, but other than that, it's fine. But in this scene, it, it turns into this cacophony of everyone yelling and screaming and the camera cutting, quickly cutting from one person to another and smoke and noise and flashes of light. And then we get a shot of the outside of the house mm -hmm. with just, for nearly a minute, just fireworks shooting out of the windows and explosions and noise and light and huge mess. I don't know how anyone got out of that without any injuries. The magic of cinema. Grandpa sits in general holding and chuckles to himself that there's never a dull moment. <laughs> Mr. Kirby, in the same cell, meanwhile, is outraged at this insult and shouts that he'll have everyone in this station fired. His ranting is interrupted by Grandpa on the harmonica as everyone in the cell save Tony and Mr. Kirby begin to sing and dance. Grandpa starts playing Polly Wally Doodle on his harmonica. And there must be like 30 or 40 people. All, oh, probably even more. All jammed into this, into this general holding cell. The drunk tank, they call it. <laughs> and he starts playing on his, har on his harmonica and all the assembled... Uh, bums and criminals and drunks begin to like lock arms and dance and jump around and have a good time which oh. is exactly what jail should be yes jail should be a musical <laughs> over in the women's cells mrs kirby tries to bribe a guard to be placed in an individual cell but is told that those are for insane inmates throw a few fits and i'll see what i can do says the guard alice tries to apologize but is told not to bother it doesn't make her any more likable also, Mrs. Kirby is approached by several prostitutes while in the cell because she still has her pearls and fur shawl with her. What kind of Johns are you servicing to get those kind of gifts, honey? <laughs> and she, oh, I never. And she goes over to sit down and she, there's nowhere safe. She sits down on the bench and Reba's there and uh, advises her to sit on her hands because the bench is cold. Yeah. And then she gets up and goes back to the bars. She cannot escape. Back on the men's side, Kirby takes a puff. 
on a, a few puffs on a fancy cigar, throws it on the ground, and all the men in the cell swarm it at the same time trying to get it. He says that he hopes Tony, he hopes that Tony has learned his lesson from all this, and Grandpa says he doesn't think it's right to interfere with young people's decisions about love, that Mr. Kirby needs to relax, and then tells Kirby his elevator origin story. Uh, Mr. Kirby is unimpressed. Says, oh, and I suppose you've, uh, you've done nothing since ever leaving the elevator. And, and Grandpa's like, yeah. Well, he <laughs> says, no, I collect stamps and I do what I want to do. And Kirby's reply is, well, that's, that's all well and dandy. I guess if everyone in this country collected stamps and did what they wanted, we'd be in a fine place. A surprise visitor then shows up, the sour-faced uh, realtor agent, who reveals that the arrest was his doing for the purpose of getting Grandpa to sell his house. His gloating is short-lived, though, because Kirby overhears and calls him a blithering idiot and yells at him to get his attorneys. Grandpa thinks it's funny that Kirby got caught in his own trap, but his gloating is also short-lived because Kirby accuses him of trying to use his son against him and says it won't work. He's a lion in the jungle who clawed his way to the top while scum like the other people in the cell stay in the gutter. Which, at that point, and even before that, when it's, you know, revealed that Alice and, and Tony are together, how did Alice not know about this? Because she's Tony's secretary and he's the vice president. Like, how did she not know that they were trying to acquire their house? Yeah, it, it, maybe Tony didn't know. He must have. He must have been in on the, you know, on... I don't get the all feeling. All the business things. There. I don't get the feeling that Tony participates much at all in the business. When he yeah. f when he first comes and introduces himself to the family and they're they're grilling him about his salary and his job, he says that uh, he gets paid much more than he's worth and basically he just has an office with his name on the door. Right. So he's he's one of those nepo babies that gets just a paycheck for showing up. Right, but even then, if she's his secretary, she would have had access to to some business dealings or something. I don't know. It just seemed like a um, the more a hole in the in the plot. The more surprising thing to me is that Kirby didn't realize that Grandpa was the old man until they're in this cell and, and Grandpa reveals it. And the agent comes up and then Kirby, oh, you're the old man who's holding up my deal. I thought, especially since he traveled to the area himself. Yeah. He was at the house. He would have known, oh, this is the area where I'm buying up all that property. This is near the yeah, factory. Yeah, he should have known that this was the last uh, the last house uh, that he didn't own. Yeah, the fact that that was a surprise to him was bonkers. Uh, Grandpa finally loses his temper at this point uh, and asks Kirby why he thinks he's a better person than anyone else here. If it's because of his money, he's a dull-witted fool. He's poorer than all the people he called scum because at least they've got friends. You may be a high mogul to yourself, Mr. Kirby, but to me you're a failure. A failure as a man, a failure as a human being, and a failure as a father. I doubt a single tear will be shed when you die. The second time that Lionel Barrymore gets to stand up to the bullies, yep. just like he did in, in Grand Hotel. Yeah, very similar reasoning as well yeah you think you're better than us well you're not you think your money makes you important well you're wrong he has been uh, typecast to be the the, the uh, underdog the underdog standing up to the the evil businessmen after his rant grandpa sits down silence 
I'm sorry, says Grandpa. I didn't mean anything I said. That's the first time I've lost my temper in, in 30 years. I don't know what came over me. <laughs> As an apology, he puts his harmonica into Kirby's pocket. In the lobby, Kirby's lawyers arrive, and a group of reporters overhear who the lawyers are asking to see and go into a frenzy over the breaking news that the famous banker A.P. Kirby is being held in the common drunk tank. There's just... There's a whole gaggle of reporters. There's like 12 of them just sitting in the police yeah. station, just waiting for a story to happen, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then they get their wish. Did he say Kirby? That Kirby? And they all go into a frenzy. We then go to the courtroom where the judge is being asked to move the Vanderhoff case to the front of the line. And the judge, unaware until that very moment that Kirby was involved, asks if that's why the courtroom is so packed with spectators tonight. Because every bench is full. No, he's told. Those are all the Vanderhoff's friends. Grandpa and his family then enter to the applause of the crowd. The charges are disturbing the peace and unlicensed manufacturing of fireworks. Kirby, represented by four attorneys, also enters at that point and pleads not guilty. Grandpa, represented by no one, says, Hell yeah, we were making fireworks. You want some? The judge clears the disturbing the peace charge, but the penalty for the fireworks manufacturing is $100, to which the the crowd murmurs and Grandpa turns and looks worried, that's a lot of money. Kirby offers to pay the fine, but Grandpa declines, and a woman in the crowd stands up and says, we'll all pay it, and a hat is passed around, eventually making its way to the judge who throws in his share. And then they just have, the judge says, oh, take this hat full of money to the clerk. That He doesn't check to see what the amount is like. Yeah. Hey, it's enough, whatever. Yeah. He just seems very happy and and very impressed that uh, so many people came for the Vanderhof. And he's, he's, yeah, he seems just genuinely heartwarmed. Yeah, he's the most jovial movie judge I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Because he immediately... Yeah, likes the Vanderhoffs too. Oh, you've got all these friends here. You must be good people. I'll drop one of the charges and then they collect the money and he throws in, which has got to be illegal, but <laughs> got caught up in the spirit. Kirby watches with a mixture of shock and disbelief as the hat gets passed around. He's just looking like, what in the world is going on? The judge then says that if, if the Vanderhoffs are guilty, then Kirby must be guilty as well, unless he can explain what he was doing there. Kirby opens his mouth to explain, but his wife cuts him off and says they've been embarrassed enough and some respect should be given for their position. Grandpa also tries to help by saying that Kirby was there to talk to him about buying his house. Alice has had enough of the Kirby's bullshit for one night, though, and steps forward saying that the real reason is her engagement to Tony. Mrs. Kirby starts to to deny it, but Tony sides with Alice, who tells him that it's about time he said something. She then goes on a rant about how it's the Kirbys who aren't good enough, not her family. She, she, yeah, she jumps on a on the table. Gets up on a table and starts to, to yell and point her finger. The reporters outside the courtroom hear thing. They're peeking through the door and they hear things getting heated and they all burst in. The whole room erupts into chaos. Alice on the table points and yells at the Kirbys and Mrs. Kirby faints dramatically. Alice runs through the crowd and out of the courtroom, and so does Tony with his fainted mother in his arms. Every every situation they're in just devolves into bedlam and chaos. Yeah. I liked it, though. I liked the scene. I really enjoyed the fact that Alice has had enough, and she's like, 
none of this bullshit anymore. Grandpa, you can don't try to help them. The Kirby's kid can go to hell. Like she, I like that she stands up and just yeah stands to, not necessarily Anthony Kirby, but just the wife. I think she's had enough of the wife because when they were in a cell, Mrs. Kirby tells her that she needs to you know shove down her, oh what's it her, ambitions her ambitions. Yeah, she needs to forget her ambitions and stay in her place. Yeah, know your place. Yeah, so I I enjoyed the fact that she too was standing uh, standing up to them. Yeah, an unexpected outburst from Alice, who up until that point had been very mild mannered and yeah. cordial, yeah, and wanting to please the Kirby's, but now she yeah, digs into Mrs. Kirby especially for being a snob and snooty and yeah a god awful rich person. Yeah, I really like the the photograph that the newspaper people get of her of her standing on the table and yelling, and then the the good scene of her pushing through the the crowd at the end, and the Kirby's also pushing through the crowd with the fainted mother in yeah. Tony's arms. It the situation just ever since the Kirby's arrived at the Vanderhof home, just it continues to just get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> the the worst meet the parents dinner that has ever occurred in history ended in a courtroom with charges of illegal fireworks manufacturing <laughs> and i was scared of you meeting my parents because you don't speak french and they don't speak english but this one way way better newspaper headline cinderella spurns prince charming court fracas reveal secret engagement cinderella flees city and we get four pictures one of tony one of alice one of mr kirby and one of mrs kirby the one of Tony has the caption, pleads. The one under Alice says, scorns. The one under Mr. Kirby says, rages. And then the one under Mrs. Kirby says, faints. And it's a great picture of her just being caught by the crowd as she falls backwards from her faint. The family sits around the dining room table looking morose and Tony enters, saying that the t- detectives he hired have checked every hotel for a hundred miles and around and there's no trace to be found of alice he comes in out of the rain because in a reflection of the the dour mood it is raining outside he asks penny if she'll tell him where alice is and penny says she doesn't know and wouldn't tell him if she did since he's the reason she left in the first place tony leaves and grandpa enters bearing a letter from alice everyone gathers around as penny reads that alice is in connecticut staying with a friend from school she misses them all and cries herself to sleep every night, but returning is impossible because of Tony and the problems it would cause everyone. She promises to write every day, sometimes even twice, and tells everyone to take care. Upon hearing this, Grandpa picks up the phone and calls the sour-faced agent. If Alice can't come to them, he'll sell the house and they'll go to her. This results in a montage of calls by men working for Kirby finalizing the munitions deal since grandpa was the only thing standing in its way and he only gets twenty five thousand. yep twenty five thousand is all they're willing to offer now then we see people in the neighborhood being given notice to vacate and they say well well i thought grandpa wasn't selling and then they see a moving truck going up to, to grandpa's house yeah and then right back to kirby's office where it's cigars and handshakes all around all that's left is for kirby to head upstairs and finalize the deal why isn't he up there already let me call the conference room and see, says one of the goons. Alone in the conference room, Kirby stares at a portrait of his ancestor and thinks. 
He's pacing around the the end of the table, around the phone. Yeah, there's a... He's got his, you know, hands behind his back and just walking around. There's a long conference table and it's all a big, like, wood-paneled room and big formal portraits of the the prior Kirby's all looking dour-faced and serious. Did you notice that, that there were ashtrays? Yeah. Everywhere, like, every uh, every other seat there was an seat. ashtray. Yeah. You could smoke on planes back then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Smoke everywhere. They're good for you. You didn't know that? Fred Flintstone told me. <laughs> he takes the harmonica out of his pocket and slides it down the long table. And it bonks off one of the ashtrays. That's what stops it. Yeah. The phone rings and Kirby tells the man on the end, the other end to hurry up and come in. The crowd we saw outside then enter and tell Kirby that everything is in order, including their pick for the new president, Kincaid. Kirby vetoes that and says Tony is the new president. The assembled goons begin to protest, but are interrupted by Ramsey himself barging in. He congr- He's on the opposite side of the room from all then at the other end of the long table. Mm-hmm. He congratulates Kirby on his victory, but tells him it's ultimately empty, because he realized after he lost that he never got one moment of true happiness from all his years in business, and neither will Kirby. You can't shut out every decent impulse and survive, says Ramsey. Kirby has all the power now, but before too long, he'll crack under it. And he pushes the harmonica back towards Kirby. It's the fate of all men like them, he says. And then he doubles over and like collapses onto the end of the table. But he's then he has a like an assistant or something with him who helps him up. And he slowly stumbles out of the room. Ramsey leaves and the goons implore Kirby to get upstairs. Kirby says to go ahead. He'll be up in a minute. The goons leave, and Tony enters. He congratulates his father and informs him he's quitting. He doesn't want any part of banking anymore and is going away to find himself. Maybe he'll work on the grass thing when he gets back. This is another one of the good interpersonal moments Mm -hmm. in the movie. He says something to the effect that he and his father used to be able to be honest and talk to each other, but... At some point, a distance developed between them, and now uh, his father won't listen to him anymore. Yeah, because it's all about business. Business is your family. I like that also in that scene, if you notice the, their placement, the father is sitting down on a chair, but Tony is sitting on, uh, on the arm of the chair, so that Tony has the... He's sitting with his head above... He's looking down on his father yep. in that moment. I really, I, I don't know if that was in the script, but I thought if it is, I thought that it was a really good uh, choice for that scene because it makes Tony. We see more of his body. He seems taller as well, and then uh, the father seems just like a shrinking man yeah, in that moment, sunken. Yeah, coming yeah right off this speech from Ramsey as well. Yes. And then at the end, he he holds uh, his dad's hand in a very awkward way and says maybe when he returns, they can have a good old-fashioned gab fest. Yeah. And the Ramsey thing also had a very Ebenezer Scrooge feel to it, like the spirits of Christmas past coming to warn you, like, yeah. your business will be the death of you. It felt like, yeah, I I can see that. I can feel like the moment in the jail when Grandpa is getting 
you know, his doing his speech at Kirby, it almost, it has that, uh, that feel where he's almost the ghost of Christmas present and then Ramsey, the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah. Kirby is a very Ebenezer figure and being shown the, the possibilities of what, what his life is and what his life could be. Yeah. Which we didn't say either, but in the jail when Grandpa is doing his speech, that's when we get the titular, you can't take it with yes, you. Yes, you're right. I didn't put that down in the synopsis. He does. He he says, you can't take it with you, Mr. Kirby. He tells Kirby to calm down about his business deals. And uh, if you just stop worrying about all this money, because Kirby says... If the papers get a hold of this, I'll be ruined and all my deals will fall through. And then Grandpa says, well, so what if your deals fall through? Why why all this time and energy uh, devoted to chasing money? You can't take it with you. Yeah. Also, another thing we haven't mentioned is on Amazon, in the title, you can't take it with you. The the T in the can't was capitalized, was capitalized randomly. So I'm also going to do that. F- uh, keep that spirit alive and randomly capitalize the T and can't for our episode <laughs> title. I'm just trying to be accurate, true to the spirit of the movie. Which if I don't think it was on the poster, but it was it definitely was on the on Amazon when we watched it. Tony leaves, and the intercom buzzes, informing Kirby that Ramsey was just found dead in the bathroom of a heart attack. A single goon then pokes his head in the room and asks Kirby to please, for the love of God, just go upstairs and sign the deal already. (laughs) Kirby makes his way to the elevator and rides it up to the 52nd floor. The doors open to reveal a room packed with men in suits, all sitting at a huge table, and they all get to their feet and begin to applaud when they see Kirby arrive. Kirby looks out at the assembled suck-ups and barks, Down! Take me down! Down, all the way to the bottom floor goes Kirby, and out the door. I almost thought that he, when he got in the elevator, that he wasn't going to go up at all. That he was just going to do, like, uh, Grandpa and just ask to uh, ride the elevator down. you got to go up before you can go down. We have to... We don't know on what floor he is have to reach the the critical breaking point you have to walk right up to the edge <laughs> at grandpa's everything is being packed up for the move and Klinkoff laments that now he'll have nowhere to eat and i didn't put it in the synopsis but at some point during the scene we cut to the kitchen and reba is talking about how she saw grandpa in his room looking at a picture of his wife and crying yes. and while she's Explaining this, Kalinkov is also in the kitchen, making sandwiches and just stuffing them into the pockets of his pants. Yeah. The old Russian saying, where there's a will, there's wheat. (laughs) And mayonnaise in your pants. (laughs) Tony sheepishly walks in and asks Grandpa one last time if he'll tell him where Alice is. Grandpa says there's an unwritten rule in the family about snitching. But there's a trunk upstairs that belongs to Alice that they'll be bringing to her. Tony says, say no more, and makes for the stairs. But before he can even start climbing, Alice herself arrives, reprimanding Grandpa for selling the house. Grandpa says what's done is done, and Tony tries to talk to her, 
but she isn't interested and pushes past him, running to her room and locking the door. Tony follows her up and like starts banging on the door and yelling yeah. her name, which I'm surprised nobody stepped in and stopped him. Well, he's there at the he's already there and I think that before any uh, of that shit went down, like they were rooting for them, so I think they've also seen Alice and she left because she was just really sad and couldn't face the, the situation so she didn't want to make it any worse than it already was so i don't think that they were against their relationship they so yeah i didn't i didn't expect anybody to stop him yeah but even if i like you all my goodwill for you goes out the window the second you start banging on my granddaughter's door and screaming at her mm. but grandpa's cool with it i guess he wasn't being violent down in the basement, the crow finds the last unexploded firework that survived the fracas and brings it to Paul, who lights it. Upstairs, in the almost empty living room, Penny says she has the feeling she'll be doing her best writing at the new house. And then the firecracker goes off, the home sweet home sign falls down, and Penny grabs Grandpa and starts to weep. Then, up through the crowd of people, taking furniture out of the house, walks Mr. Kirby. He asks to speak to Grandpa alone, and they sit in the middle of the empty room and confer. He says that Grandpa once told him he was a bad father, and he is. Tony walked out on him, and it's just about wrecked him. He doesn't know how to handle these kinds of things, and needs Grandpa's advice. Grandpa tells him that when he runs into a jam like this, his strategy is to take out his harmonica and play it until the trouble fades away. Kirby says that's the most dipshit stupid nonsense he's ever heard, but Grandpa insists. You brought your harmonica with you, didn't you? And Grandpa has, has his own, despite the fact the harmonica Kirby has is the one that Grandpa gave to him. She did say it was a new harmonica, so I guess he has an old one. Yeah. He bets that if they play a duet together right here and now, Kirby would be surprised at what would happen. And so they play. They play Polly Wally Doodle, because Kirby knows it because that's the song he played in the prison. Yep. Ed quickly joins on the xylophone, Essie begins to dance, and the crowd of people from the neighborhood who were helping move things out slowly trickle in to see what's happening, and they all start clapping and singing along. The noise brings Alice and Tony down from upstairs, and Tony and his father look at each other in shock. Tony hugs Alice and looks at his father, who smiles and nods his approval. Alice sees his nod, shouts with joy, and gives Kirby a kiss on the cheek, causing him to laugh. She runs around the room hugging everyone, and Klinkoff is picked up, spun around, and slammed on the ground by Kirby. <laughs> yeah, revenge. Yeah, yeah, recreation of his wrestling move. Mrs. Kirby then arrives, sees her husband playing harmonica and her son dancing with Alice, and faints again. Yeah, because oh. that's the only thing she knows how to do. Yep. Her position in all this remains unchanged. <laughs> Yeah, Kirby has had a change of heart. Mrs. Kirby, no change at all. <laughs> Penny fans Mrs. Kirby with the home sweet home sign and then puts it back in its rightful place. The end. No, not the end. There's a like one minute scene of them all gathered together. Yeah, which is very sweet because Grandpa has this thing when uh, before they have dinner where he talks to his wife and uh, thanks uh, her for like blessing them and for, yeah. No, he he's talking to God. He's no, not... he talks to his wife. He's not married to God. What are you? <laughs> he's talking. I promise you, he's talking to his dead wife for watching over them. <laughs> Grandpa. The ending of this movie is Grandpa holding a seance. 
<laughs> now. But whenever they... We, Spirits that haunt this house. We see them twice. We see the, this happening twice. And he's talking directly to his wife and, and thanking her and telling telling her about their life. And yeah, thanking her for watching over them. From he heaven. does it right before they eat. He's praying. I was just trying to keep this stuff in church. We will watch this movie again and I will prove you wrong. Uh, I like my ending better. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then we see Mrs. Kirby finally turning around because she's sitting next to Kalenkov uh, at the dinner table and he makes her laugh. Yeah, he whispers something into her ear, probably that she stinks and then she laughs. Maybe. And every, everyone's happy and getting along at the dinner table. Yeah, so this was not the final scene. This was This dinner was the final scene. It would have been much more... It would have been a tighter ending if it just ended with the, the home sweet home sign being put in place and we didn't have this awkward ghost conversation. I liked it though because Grandpa gets to stay in the house and gets to stay close to his wife. Yep. To his dead wife. To his dead wife. And her spirit. The haunting will continue. Yes. So what did you think of You Can't Take It With You? Grandma Will Return in the Amityville house horror. <laughs> this movie, it's too naive. It has some really salient points, especially about like the ism stuff and the use of fear to make people buy things and how most people live in fear. But the ultimate conclusions it comes to about this stuff where you just gotta believe and follow your heart and no. Yeah, when I, I... I cannot buy into it. It's so overly sweet and childish and like I said at the very beginning of this, it it's a kid's movie for grown-ups yeah. with how simple its worldview is. Like, the fact that a munitions dealer, not just a munitions dealer, but a man who's about to have a monopoly on munitions dealing for an entire country has a change of heart through a harmonica song? <laughs> Fuck off. Like, <laughs> oh, the... He just, he just had to have his heart warmed with the goofy song. And if you just go to your local uh, warmonger and give him a harmonica and play the, the Polly Wally Doodle, come around and he'll, we'll all have a, a friendly jamboree with each other. Like, bullshit. Of course. Of course. But, yeah, it's still... It has, like you said, it has some heart warming. It, it... The heart of the movie is in, is in a good place. It's just not realistic. It, it's not realistic at all. Like I, I, the things that I enjoyed for me in the movie were the whole like Vanderhoff family. They look like yeah, it's a uh, movie perfect family, but it's the kind of family that you that people catch themselves dreaming about sometimes like everybody has their quirk and everybody uh, gets along and family is definitely one of the core values of this movie they all support each other yeah yeah i want to like this movie yeah i want to like it i want to be on its side i feel like the grinch for <laughs> disliking it like my heart has, is three sizes too small but it's just it understands what's going on in the world and then the conclusion it comes to is 
follow your dreams and sing a song and everything will work out? No. Like, would I have a problem? I just take out my harmonica and all my troubles go away. Like, die in a fire, Grandpa. That is not how the world works. Don't kill Grandpa. He wants to be with his wife. I'm doing him a favor. Oh, no. I would Like you and I talked about uh, off mic, I feel like it would have been... I would have liked it more if the ending had really, you know, stayed its course and just if they had really sold the house, moved to Connecticut to be with uh, with Alice and if Tony had just left with them because it would have kept its message of like you need to he need to value family and do whatever it takes also to to take care of your family and stay with them and preserve them it would have been a much better ending it would have been sad to see them leave the house but it would have been more realistic and i and i think more on point with the with the message if they had left yeah the level of magical thinking this movie indulges in rubs me the wrong way yeah nobody gives up that amount of money for and Everybody else stayed in their house. Yeah. He gave a, he you know, gave everybody their properties back. So in the end, like, he's probably lost everything. Yeah, everything is solved with a song and a duet. And if you just if you're just not afraid and you live life the way you want to live, everything will work out. And that's not true. That's just not true. That, yeah, that's not the world that we live in. Yeah, it just... It reminds me of the the kind of magical thinking that people tend to devolve into towards the end of their lives, where mm-hmm. they just start believing in empty platitudes because it's easier than facing reality. Yeah. It's a feel-good movie. And it's a, a, a tonal trend we've been seeing in the Best Picture winners overall in this time period, where we started off with... It much, happened one night. Yeah, that's kind of where the turn happened. In the yeah. beginning of the, the decade, we were seeing much more gritty and realistic, like All Quiet on the Western Front and things that were you know, considering war and the consequences of it and cavalcade with you know, everything. It was just like a two-hour-long stare into the abyss. and Even Grand Hotel with the death of the Baron. Yeah, and then we got to all... Uh, it happened one night, and there's this shift towards this sunny naivete, looking on the bright side of things. It's like the reality has gotten too grim for everyone, so now they just want to escape from it. And we get these uh, bright and shiny Hollywood tales, feel-good stories of uh, triumphing over evil and uh, just follow your dreams and everything works out and it's all good and sunshine and rainbows and it just feels like they're engaging in delusion well you have to also put the movie and that era back in context also we're about to enter into the second world war which you know people don't know yet at that point but there has been uh, there have been signs like Hitler has been in power since 1933. Things are much more grim worldwide. There's been the you know ten years before that was the uh, the crash in uh, 1928. So I think people are 
you know, looking to have entertainment that will make them feel good. And instead of, yeah, All Quiet on a Western Front was super grim. Like, that's the most depressing movie we've watched so far. It's, yeah, you have to put that in context, I, I think, also of what people might want to see as their entertainment. There was a willingness to engage with these grim topics in the beginning of the decade, but the further we go on, we're just sinking into denial, yeah. it feels like. Yeah. They don't want to deal with it anymore, so just whip out your harmonica and, and play a, a, a jaunty tune. If it wasn't for the ending, I think it could be it could make it high on both of our lists. I think when we first watched the movie, as soon as it ended, I thought, "Oh, I think I found my my new number one because I'm a sucker for feel good movies, and I liked some of the the messages of that of this one, like you know, taking care of your family and having some." You know, family, I don't know what, I, what a good word is, but just almost your, like, family lore, I guess, to have, like, memories and legends and, and have, like, a history, something that binds people together. And that was a really appealing to me. But, yeah, like you said, it's very naive and doesn't at all uh, represent the society that we live in and the way people do things it makes it's feel good but it makes me feel too good and when i feel too good <laughs> i feel bad <laughs> the paradox and none of the characters aside from grandpa have any depth or development to them They're all just their quirk, yeah. and that's it. Their quirk is set up, and that's their recurring joke, and every time they're on screen, they do their quirk, and that's it. And you, there's no insight into their motivations or why they do their quirk or what they like about their quirk or who these people are on any sort of level. They're all really superficial characters yeah. that are just there for gags, mostly. Even Grandpa doesn't have a whole lot of uh, character development. He at least has a philosophy. Yes. But his philosophy is mostly just, you know, do what you like. And yes. how is that supposed to bring food on the table? Like the, uh, There's a comment about, uh, about that in the movie. Like when Alice leaves, somebody said, well, how are we going to feed ourselves? Because Alice was the only one with a real job. There is a line about... Grandpa occasionally works appraising stamp collections because mm. that's his passion, but yeah. And Essie sells candy, but that's about it. It's just in real life, I always despise the, oh, it'll just work out line of platitudes. And that is this, that's all this movie has to give you. Just believe. Thanks. Thanks, movie. Things will be all right. I'll go tell my bill collectors that I believe. <laughs> I'll tell, I'll tell Judge I believe. I'll tell the tax man I believe. Yeah, the IRS <laughs> coming on to collect on 22 years <laughs> of income taxes. <laughs> That's also, yeah, things like that that also have loose ends. I don't like when something is introduced just for the purpose of disturbing 
yet to create a, a disturbance in the in the movie or in the plot and then it turns out that nothing is done with it what are you talking about the iris guy oh yeah in. his the 22 years of back taxes yeah. that grandpa still owes at the end yeah uh he'll just play a harmonica song with the irs agent and, and then, it will be fine and then the irs it, well if a munitions dealer's heart can be <laughs> melted with the harmonica certainly an irs agent's heart can be melted and that's, that's the real, the mistake this movie is making, that people like that have a heart to melt. It's not that their heart is frozen over, it's that they don't have one in the first place. Yeah, it takes a, a certain kind of people to, to make that kinds of deals, I guess, like Kirby and, and people, a certain kind of people to work in the arts, yes, maybe. Yes, certainly not every business person is evil, but... If you are the head of a munitions monopoly, you are a goddamn lizard person. <laughs> your heart cannot be warmed because your heart isn't there. So, the premise of this movie is absurd. Can you tell us about things uh, that you liked in the movie, though? The things I liked about the movie, yeah. like I said before, the intimate interpersonal moments were, were well written. They did a good job of the characters being vulnerable and honest with each other. Yeah. Tony was well-written. Grandpa's talk with Alice about how uh, he won't leave the house because of his... It reminds him of his wife, all those things. The intimate, vulnerable moments were good. Some of the some of the quirks and goofs were great. The, the house exploding, it had a little bit of that, like, <laughs> non-sequitur flavor that I like that Catholicate had. Just the, the things you would never expect to see would never have thought going into this movie that their entire house was going to explode. Mm. Which it didn't really. It was just fireworks shooting in the streets and, and um, up the walls. It's, and... it's just like the, the neighbors passing the hat around. They, they just rebuild the house before Grandpa came back because they love him so much. Yep. It makes it hard to put on the list, honestly, because like I said, I'm such a sucker for feel-good movies, but at the same time, there's nothing I'd, really particular, uh, specific to this I, movie. I was full-on with most of its social commentary, too. Like, yeah. the, the ism stuff and the, the commercialization of fear, and yeah, right on, hit the nail on the head. And then we, but we, then we veer off into this wishful thinking, empty platitudes. Yeah, I'm having definitely a, a hard time deciding where it goes just because of how good I felt watching it but then the more I think about it the more I'm like eh, this has some some holes in it oh, don't let my humbuggery stop you no but it's I have to you know give a uh, give it an accurate rating of how it how I feel about it so do I like it more than it happened one night? That's about where I feel. Mm. It happened one night is number six for you currently. Yeah. No, I guess I'm going to put it between it happened one night and meeting on the bounty. So right now. Okay, so I have my current rating at number one, still wings. Number two, All Quiet on the Western Front. Number three, Cavalcade. See, you like the bleakness too. All the stuff at the top <laughs> is the, the gazing into the abyss stuff. 
Because... Spit this candy out of your mouth. Okay, but these movies, Wings, for the time that it was made, I think we can still agree that it had some like great visual effects, and yeah. great technical... It uh, still has the best effects. Yeah. Yeah, that's why, even though it's bleak, it still has to be at the at the top of my of my rating. Just thinking about the time that it was made and how much technical prowess it has, I can't, I I can't in good conscience take it off from number one right now. Uh, number three is Still Cavalcade. Number four, The Great Ziegfeld. Five is The Life of Emile Zola. Six, It Happened One Night. Seven, You Can't Take It With You. 8, Mutiny on the Bounty, 9, Broadway Melody, 10, Grand Hotel, and 11, Cimarron. Where do you think it's going to go on your list? This It's hard for me, too. I I want to like this movie. I, yes. I, but it's pushing me away. I, I understand your, your problem right here. Mm. My current list is Grand Hotel at the top, number 2 is Cavalcade, number 3 is Wings, then Mutiny on the Bounty... The Life of Emil Zola at number five, The Great Segfield, number six, number seven is All Quiet on the Western Front, number eight is It Happened One Night, then Broadway Melody and Cimarron below that. There's no way this goes in the top half of the list. So it's going below Zola, but how far below? Okay. Is it better than The Great Segfield? There is nothing, despite the fact that an entire house exploded in this movie, <laughs> that still doesn't uh, surpass the layer cake. Yeah, no. Not even close. So below the Great Zegfeld, is it better than All Quiet on the Western Front? Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front knew how the world actually works. <laughs> And is not dancing around with its fingers plugged into its ears, blowing blowing so loudly on its harmonica that it can't hear anything else. So no, below All Quiet on the Western Front. Is it better than It Happened One Night? What do you think? Uh, it Happened One Night had those cool noirish like smoke scenes, and there's no... Yeah. There's nothing as visually interesting in this movie as that. So... Yeah, I think it's going to go below what happened one night and above Broadway Melody and Cimarron. Alrighty. It's it's nothing technically wrong with this movie. It's just... Not realistic enough. It's insultingly naive. Yeah. Yeah, I think it has that quality, like you said, of making... It could make people think or buy into the... It's going to be okay. Just relax and it's going to be fine. Well, it's like it knows. It knows what the world is, but then wants to pretend that it doesn't. And that just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. You think we'll continue on this trend of not wanting to engage with reality and just uh, floating away into our uh, fantasy land of sunshine and rainbows going forward? I hope not. And, I mean, at least the next one is not that. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Yes, we should and take this opportunity to say that Gone with the Wind will be a two-parter. Yeah, because otherwise uh, that's a, it would, the episode would be five hours long and nobody wants that. Yeah, it's a four-hour long movie and I'm not going to write a synopsis 
all at once for a four-hour movie. So our next episode will be the first two hours of Gone with the Wind. And then yeah. the episode after that will be the final two hours. And we're also going to do a special end-of-decade retrospective. Yeah. Where we talk about, you know, favorite characters and directors and favorite moments from the decade. Favorite moments. Maybe do our own ceremony for like hey what was the best writing or what was the best you know art direction or something like maybe not a whole lot of categories but definitely have a little summary of the decade as we close out the 1930s yep one movie remains one and Clark Gable comes back yep ah <sighs> The four-hour-long juggernaut of Gone with the Wind mm -hmm. is all that stands between us and a new decade. I'm fairly sure that this is the longest movie we'll watch. Are you sure Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia aren't longer? I don't... They might be close, but I, I'm fairly... I'm like 95% sure that this is the longest movie Those we'll watch. Those will definitely also be two-part episodes as well. Yes. Anything else? I don't think so. Yeah. My phone, final evaluation of this movie. <laughs> it stinks. <laughs> Confidentially, it stinks. Yeah. Yeah. It good to watch. It will give you, you know, some good feels, but eventually just not in touch with reality. Not enough in touch with the uh, with reality. Yeah, it's like you expect me to buy this. Like, how big of a sucker do you think I am? Mm. Alrighty. Yep. We'll see you next time. Thanks, for... everybody, for listening. Yeah, and then we'll see you next time for the first part of Gone with the Wind. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.